0: Fire!
1: Other angry voices echoed from the crowd. Kill them! Montgomery got to his feet, cocked his weapon, which was loaded with two musket balls, and angrily shouted, Fire! He fired into the crowd, although no command had been given. Both musket balls hit Crispus Attucks in the chest. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. And of course, today we'll feature chapter 54 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, and things are really beginning to heat up in Boston. And it's still wintertime there. Plus, our author extraordinaire, Jenny L. Cody, will give us some insights on what really led to the colonies actually feeling the need to declare independence in the first place. And speaking of the first place, here's the trio of epic animals that always holds first place in my heart. After Jesus, of course. Well, yes, that's true.
0: And after Mrs.
1: lad! Well, yeah, that's obviously true as well. Uh, so when you do the math, old boy, we can do no better than uh, third, third place. place. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, thanks for ruining what could have been a really great introduction. Aye, uh, even if none of it were true,
0: we, oui, but uh, we do appreciate the hyperbole, Monsieur.
1: Indeed, old chap. We are happy to settle for a more honest and accurate uh, bronze medal, as it were. Yeah. So here they are, the epic third-place trio: Max, Liz, and Nigel. Hmm. Third-place trio. Somehow it don't seem to have the same punch, laddie. Oui, that was a bit uh, deflating. Does sort of undermine the overture. What? Yeah, well, uh, you're, you're all welcome. Oh, and you'll be happy to know that I stopped to get the mail today. Well, uh, thank you, lad, but I thought that were my job.
0: Well, uh, this way we won't have to wait for them to dry out.
1: And thus, perhaps none of the ink will run. It'll be easier to read. And
0: no teeth marks. All
1: right, I get
0: the message.
1: Uh, were there anything for me then? Yeah, but you're not gonna like it. It's, uh, it's from the government.
0: Uh oh! Did you violate the leash law? Of no, course not! And that whole dog catcher thing be straightened out! And I had all my shots, too!
1: Uh-oh. Uh oh! What about your license? I don't even drive!
0: He means your dog license, mon ami! Since when do you need a license to be a dog?
1: <laughs> no, Max. Uh, each year you are required to be licensed by the city, thus, the tag hanging off your collar with all the pertinent information, identification, and whatnot.
0: That way they know who you belong to. So, for example, if you got lost, they could help you find your way home, and so on. That'd be kind of personal, don't it? I mean, aren't I supposed to be able to do what's up to me? Aren't this a free country?
1: Well, old boy, uh, freedom is never quite free.
0: That is for sure, because your license has to be paid for as well.
1: And that's what this notice is. It's time to renew your dog license.
0: I'm still the same dog I were last year. There requires a license to be renewed annually, Max.
1: It is simply a tax. Aye, and this attacks tax need to stop. Not a tax, old boy. A tax. The license fee is a tax. Oh,
0: so I be a taxpayer. So I should have a say in how I'm being governed then, right? But I don't get to vote. Oh, quel dommage. So you have no one speaking on your behalf, mon ami. That is taxation without representation. Ha,
1: brilliant. Uh, Max, old boy, as a taxpayer, that is your right in these United States to have representation. Aye, but there don't be anyone speaking for me. I mean, can you name one dog in Congress?
0: Um... Not touching that one. uh,
1: Nope, uh, I'm not going Uh, there. uh, I say, uh, pass. Aye, so I'll not be paying me taxes until there be a real dog in Washington. Again, I'm... I shan't go there. Not touching it. Uh-uh. But here's the deal, Max. You would have a real complaint if the tax were coming out of your pocket. <laughs> well, uh, you might notice, lad. I don't come with pockets. Exactly. But here are the facts, Max. Someone else pays your tax, so relax. Monsieur, your
0: comedy lacks, so enough with the wise cracks.
1: And let's get down to brass tax. <laughs> and also, chap, time for your yak, yak, yaks. Chapter 54, Bloody Boston, Wharton and Bow Booksellers, Boston, March 5th, 1770, 1pm. Henry Knox's lips moved silently as he read from a book about European military strategy. The six-foot, burly, nineteen-year-old leaned his elbows on the counter, so engrossed in the book, he didn't hear the little bell ring as the door to the booksellers' shop opened. In walked Captain John Preston, a grenadier serving with the 29th Regiment of Foot, one of the regiments sent to Boston from Ireland, to restore order. The 40-year-old British officer stomped the ice from his black boots and brushed the snow off his red coat. Good day, Mr. Knox. That must be an engaging read, Captain Preston noted with a grin, walking over to the counter. Henry started and then stood up abruptly. Uh, good day, Captain Preston. Yes, indeed. I'm reading about siege warfare." -"Big guns?" Captain Preston asked, tipping back the book to see the cover. -"Yes, sir. I've always been interested in artillery. Ever since I joined the Train Militia Company of Artillery in 1768," Henry answered, closing the book. -"I've loved reading about military history and warfare since I started working here as a nine-year-old boy. I think I've read every book in this shop." "'Ah, yes. Didn't you tell me the train drilled with a British regular artillery unit the winter of 66?' Captain Preston recalled. "'Indeed. The British regulars were delayed from leaving Boston for Quebec, so Captain Mason had the train benefit from that bad winter weather by learning from the best artillery soldiers. I was only 16 at the time, but one of the sergeants allowed me to watch them up close. (laughs) Would you believe his name was Sergeant Jock Frost?' Henry asked with a grin. Jock Frost, uh, not Jack Frost, Captain Preston asked. No, sir, Sergeant Jock Frost, Henry confirmed. Well, what can I help you with today, sir? Captain Preston pointed to a can of snuff on the shelf behind Henry. One can, and the latest gazette. I'm the officer of the day, but it will soon be a cold night. Simple comforts. Very good, sir. Henry answered, reaching for the snuff. As his back was turned, he heard the bell on the entrance door sound announcing another customer. He turned to see the old sergeant from the train step inside, and at his feet was a little black dog. Uh, Sergeant Frost! What a strange coincidence! I was just talking about you to Captain Preston here, Henry told him, setting the box of snuff on the counter. Good day, lad. Aye, "'Tis a cold, snowy day, just like the day we trained with those guns,' the old white-haired soldier answered, his blue eyes twinkling with a knowing grin. He nodded to Captain Preston and put a finger to his black tricorn hat. "'Sir?' "'And who's this fine dog?' Henry asked with a big grin, kneeling to pet the Scottish terrier. "'Aren't you the sturdy fella?' "'His name is Max, and he's one of me best soldiers, always barreling through the snow and ice.' Sergeant Frost answered with a grin. Never were there a finer breed to have by your side in winter, Mr. Knox. Ice and snow don't seem to bother Scutties a bit. I'd love to have a dog like this, Henry agreed, rubbing Max behind the ears, then standing with his hands on his hips, grinning broadly. Aye, of course you would, being a fine scot yourself, Sergeant Frost answered. He winked at Max. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to have a son-of-a-gun a, a Max here one day. Captain Preston put his coin on the counter, picked up the Boston Gazette, and frowned. Sprawled on the front page was the horrible news covering the massive funeral for Christopher Sider a week before. Such a senseless tragedy. They said it was the largest funeral ever held in America. Some 2,000 people lined the streets of Boston, Henry reported with a wrinkled brow. If only Dr. Warren could have saved the boy, Sergeant Frost added sadly, shaking his head. His eyes brimmed for a brief moment as he looked down at Max, who looked up at him with sad eyes. Captain Preston folded the paper and snapped it on the counter. I know that hothead Sam Adams and his kind roused up those boys to go after the customs official. Then he roused the crowds to line the streets for the boys' funeral, he surmised angrily. He played on the people's emotions by having 300 children dressed as angels in white to walk behind the casket. The situation was sad enough without Adams making it worse. Tensions have been high all week, and until those hardheads learn to respect British authority, things are only going to get worse for the people of Boston.
0: "'One thing you must keep in mind.' "'Captain Preston, is that Bostonians are passionate about their liberty, "'and they'll fight
1: to the last drop of blood in their veins if they have to,' Sergeant Frost warned, stopping the man as he turned to leave. "'They do wish to remain loyal to
0: the Crown, "'but not at the expense of their freedom. "'But understand also that there are those "'who wish to cause trouble for the sake of trouble. "'The scuffles between your soldiers "'and the citizens at the rope-walk the other day could lead to more heated conflict. Keep a close watch on your men, Captain. It's a powder keg on the streets of Boston. We don't want any more innocent blood spilled out there. Let the frosty chill of the night remind you to cool your tempers.
1: Captain Preston stared into the penetrating blue eyes of this old soldier and felt a sense of urgency to get back to his men. Agreed, Sergeant Frost. He nodded to Henry. Mr. Knox... As Captain Preston left the bookshop, Sergeant Frost turned to Henry Knox and tapped the book about artillery sitting on the counter.
0: Be on your guard as well, lad. Remember, it only takes a single spark to fire a cannon, much less a musket.
1: Thank you, sir, Henry replied. Even though you're retired, you're still on guard for Boston and for me. May the same be said of ye one day, lad, Sergeant Frost answered, leaning in with a knowing grin. You may not always just read books about fire and cannons. You may command an artillery unit of your own some day. Once a soldier, always a soldier. Well right now, I'm saving my money to open my own bookstore next year. But I appreciate your confidence in me, Henry replied. Uh, what was it you came in for, sir? Just to say hello. We'll be going now, Sergeant Frost said, turning with Max to walk to the door. A rush of cold air came inside as the bell jingled. Keep yourself safe, lad. It may be a frosty night ahead, but things are heating up in the streets of Boston. Will do, Sergeant Frost. Goodbye, Max. Thanks for stopping by, Henry told them, rubbing his upper arms against the blast of cold air. He closed the door behind them and went back to pick up his book. He smiled. Huh. Jock Frost. When the old soldier and Max were outside walking down the street, Max looked up. What did you mean with that son of a gun comment, lass? Clary grinned. Oh, just planting a seed, Max. Her smile faded as she pulled her collar up around her neck against the chill. You needed to meet Henry Knox and Captain Preston. We must make sure they are both kept safe tonight. Get ready, Max. Things will happen quickly here in Boston. Boston, March 5th, 1770, 7.30 p.m. Captain John Goldfinch of the British 14th Regiment of Foot turned to walk hurriedly down King Street in the center of town. A brawl had erupted between some Boston dock workers and British soldiers outside Murray's Barracks, and Goldfinch was headed there to break it up. Goldfinch passed a wigmaker's shop belonging to John Piemont. Standing in front of the shop was one of the wigmaker's teenage apprentices named Edward Garrick. The boisterous teen recognized the captain as one of their slower-paying customers. His hands were covered in grease from having worked on shaping some wigs. He wiped his greasy palms onto his apron and pointed a finger at the captain. You there! You haven't paid your bill to Mr. Piemont! Captain Goldfinch happened to have a receipt from the wigmaker in his pocket. He had paid his bill earlier... But was not about to even acknowledge the presence of some ignorant, lowly wig maker's boy, rudely shouting accusations at him in the street. He walked on, ignoring Edward's taunts. "Greasy lobsterback,
0: you're all alike,"
1: Edward called after the silent captain. Standing within earshot of Edward's shouting was Private Hugh White of the Twenty Ninth Regiment. The thirty-year-old soldier stood guard at his sentry post in front of the nearby customs house, a mansion that had been rented to house the customs office where the King's treasury was collected and used for the colony of Massachusetts. As an 11-year veteran serving His Majesty's army, Private White was not about to ignore the insults hurled at an officer of the Crown. He was weary of the continual disrespect that the people of Boston had for the troops stationed there, and today he had had his fill of their hot-headed remarks. Private White pointed a finger at Edward. You there, that officer is a gentleman, and if he owes you anything, he will pay it. Ha! There are no gentlemen in the 14th Regiment! Edward snapped back, before turning to see his fellow apprentice, Bartholomew Broaders, walking up to him with a young lady on each arm. He bowed low, with his arm over his chest, putting on his best gentlemanly gesture. My dear ladies, shall we enjoy some refreshments? Edward joined the three other teenagers, and together they walked past Private White and into the Customs House. The two girls worked in the kitchen, and frequently invited the boys in for a meal. This only irritated Private White even further, to have such an insolent youth dining inside the place he was obliged to guard. Customs House, Boston, March 5, 1770, 8.30 p.m. Edward and Bartholomew left the young ladies and stepped back out onto King Street, patting their stomachs after enjoying a warm meal. Edward spied Private White and grinned, nudging Bartholomew with his elbow. It was a bitter cold night, and the soldier stomped his feet in place, trying to keep warm. Edward spat on the ground as he walked in the shadows near Private White. Filthy stealing lobster back goldfinch better pay his bill, or we'll rip his wig from his head when we see him next. The teenage boys laughed as they shuffled through the snow. Private White lifted his chin and clenched his jaw. Come over here, boy, unless you're afraid to show your face. He challenged, icy puffs of breath rising into the air. He was standing next to a small lantern hung by his sentry alcove, placed by the Customs House steps. The light from the flame danced off his fixed bayonet as he gripped his musket tight. I'm not afraid to show my face, Edward answered, walking over with his hands on his hips. He leaned in close to the soldier, the glint of the lantern illuminating his defiant sneer. Especially to a lobster back. Private White's eyes filled with fury and he raised his weapon high, quickly hitting Edward on the side of the head with the butt of his musket. Edward staggered backward and gripped his head, crying out in pain. Bartholomew grabbed Edward by the arms and shouted angrily at Private White,
0: "'What do you mean by abusing the people?'
1: A redcoat sergeant ran over, having seen what happened. "'Get out of here, vermin!' he shouted as he chased the young men away with his sword. The teenagers ran off into the darkness, shouting about what had happened, drawing alarmed bystanders closer to the sentry's post. Henry Knox was heading home after visiting with friends when he turned a corner and bumped into the shouting teenagers, who continued to rant about what the sentry had done. "'Dear God,' he muttered under his breath, hurrying to the customs house. When he arrived, Henry saw Private White removing his bayonet to load his musket. He ran up to the soldier and gripped his arm, shaking his head. "'If you fire, you will die!' Private White shook Henry Knox off his arm and roared back, I don't care. If they touch me, I will fire. The small gathering of bystanders started to grow as more boys and men flocked to the scene. You rascally scoundrel lobster, they shouted. One of the boys made a snowball and threw it at the customs house door, followed by more volleys of snowballs from other boys. One of the town watchmen named Edward Langford hurried to stand between the sentry, the flying snowballs, and the grumbling crowd. Come now, and let the sentry alone. He turned to Private White and held his hand out to the crowd. The image of dead Christopher Sider was still fresh in his mind, and he feared for the boys. Don't be afraid, Private. They are only boys. They won't hurt you. Just then a couple of young boys started running after a teenage boy toward the church. Come on!
0: Some stinky man said he'd pay for us to ring the bell.
1: Dockyard, Boston, March 5th, 1770, 8.30 p.m. A group of sailors warmed their hands around a fire outside by John Gray's rope walk. They had finished an exhausting day of making ropes for the tall ships in the harbor. They passed a small flask of rum to warm themselves as they sat in a circle to rest for a while. "'I can hardly feel my hands,' complained Samuel Gray, one of the rope workers. "'He moaned and rubbed his sore, cold fingers. "'Keep your mouth shut, Gray,' another rope worker named Samuel Bostwick snapped back. "'If Mr. Gray hears you complaining, he might hire one of them lobster backs "'that Green picked a fight with last week.' "'Listen to him,' Crispus Attucks added. "'He was a mulatto slave turned sailor who knew these rope workers. "'You may share Gray's last name.' But you're not related to the boss, so your job is on the line. Samuel Gray took a swig and nodded. Green didn't show up for work today. Suddenly, a dirty, smelly man dropped a bundle of thick sticks on the ground by the fire and proceeded to barge in on their conversation. Didn't you hear what happened to William Green? He stoked the fire as the rope workers looked at one another in alarm. Samuel Bostwick wrinkled his nose and squinted his eyes at the smelly man. What happened, stranger? Mr. Gray
0: made a deal with the colonels of the twenty-ninth and 14th regiments. He told them he'd fire Green, who caused the fight with his big mouth that insulted that lobster back and set off that brawl with those 30 soldiers,
1: the man explained. He neglected to tell the sailors that Mr. Gray also had the colonels agree that soldiers would not enter his property without his permission, and each side would try to calm their own men.
0: I tell you, the customs office is behind all of Boston's troubles. If it weren't for them, there would not be lobster bags in
1: Boston stirring things up and threatening to steal our jobs. Crispus Attucks frowned and rose to his feet in anger. He's right. How much more of this are we going to take? Brawl at Murray's Barracks! Someone shouted in the streets. Now there's trouble at the customs house! Startled, the men all got to their feet. Speak of the devil! We should go see exactly what the trouble is, Samuel Gray grumbled. The dirty man picked up two of the thick firewood sticks and handed them to Crispus Attucks and Samuel Gray. Better take some
0: clubs, just in case you meet up with any of those lobster backs.
1: Come on, Crispus agreed, gripping a stick and stopping off toward the customs house. Soon a group of twenty sailors were marching in the darkened, snowy streets with Crispus Attucks in the lead. The dirty man cupped his ear playfully, as if anticipating a sound. A moment later came the sound of church bells ringing rapidly which usually sounded the alarm for fire. Ah, there we are. He picked up a large heavy stick and grinned. But there is no fire, is there? Customs House, Boston, March 5th, 1770, 9 p.m. The crowd now swelled to 200 people many of whom arrived at the city center with fire buckets in hand after hearing the alarm bells. When it soon became clear there was no physical fire, an angry blaze of news quickly spread through the crowd about the earlier brawl outside Murray's barracks and about the scene now unfolding at the Customs House. Private White sent two messengers to the main guard located by the townhouse calling for reinforcements. The senior officer there was none other than Captain Thomas Preston, who immediately sent a force of seven privates from the 29th under Corporal William Wems. He told them he would follow them shortly. "'Stand out of the way!' shouted the soldiers as they poked bystanders with their bayonets to make a path through the crowd. They quickly surrounded Private White, forming a semicircle in front of the Customs House steps. The angry mob started throwing oyster shells and snowballs. "'This isn't good!' Three of those privates were in the brawls at the rope walk last week, Clarie told Max, eyeing the group of now thirty sailors making their way to the front of the crowd, clubs in hand. She then spotted Henry Knox. I'll get to Knox. You get to Preston. On it, Max agreed, weaving through the legs of the crowd to reach the soldiers. Henry Knox saw Captain Preston making his way to his men and grabbed him by the coat. For God's sake, take care of your men. If they fire, you will die. Captain Preston clenched his jaw and calmly looked Henry in the eye. He removed Henry's hand from his coat. I am aware of it. The two men shared a brief moment of unspoken alarm, recalling Sergeant Frost's words earlier that afternoon. Cool your tempers. When Captain Preston left Henry standing there in the street, Sergeant Frost rushed up to the young man, grabbing his arm. Step back, lad. You don't want to get tangled up in this mess. Henry Knox, startled to see his old sergeant suddenly next to him again, nodded. Sergeant Frost pulled Knox firmly by the elbow back into the crowd. Max poked his head out in front of the crowd, seeing the soldiers arrayed in a semicircle, holding their muskets chest high, their bayonets fixed. Captain Preston walked in front of his men and shouted to the crowd, Go to your homes! Clear the streets! A local innkeeper named Richard Palms was carrying a club, having just come from the scuffle with soldiers and citizens in front of Murray's barracks. He walked right up to Captain Preston and got in his face. Are your men's weapons loaded? They are, but they will not fire unless they are ordered to do so, Captain Preston replied. "'not taking his eye off the crowd. "'Palms gripped his club angrily. "'Without a magistrate, you have no legal authority "'to order your men to fire. "'I hope you do not intend these men to fire upon the citizens.' "'Sir, by no means,' Captain Preston replied calmly. "'As you can see, I am standing in front of my men.' "'The crowd pressed in closer around the soldiers, "'taunting them with jeers and threats.' We did not send for you! We will not have you here! We'll get rid of you! We'll drive you away! They continued to angrily hurl oyster shells, snowballs, and other small objects at the soldiers. It wasn't enough that the customs informer killed young Christopher Sider, came the voice of Robert Patterson, the sailor whose trousers had been torn by Richardson's gunshot that day. Now this customs sentry seeks to kill another of Boston's youth? Seeing one of the same soldiers they had fought with days ago, Crispus Attucks stepped up and grabbed his bayonet, jerking it back and forth. Have you come back to finish what you started, Lobster Beck? Suddenly, Max looked up to see the same dirty man from the street where Christopher had been shot. The man was pushing his way to the front of the crowd. He lifted his arm and threw a club that struck Private Montgomery in the head, knocking him to the snowy street all the while screaming,
0: "'Fire!
1: Fire, you bloody backs! You lobsters! I dare you to fire!' Montgomery dropped his musket and scrambled in the snow to quickly retrieve it. Max ran over to Captain Preston and Richard Palms as chaotic shouting broke out all around them. "'Fire! You dare not fire!' Other angry voices echoed from the crowd. "'Kill them!' Montgomery got to his feet, cocked his weapon, which was loaded with two musket balls, and angrily shouted, Fire! He fired into the crowd, although no command had been given. Both musket balls hit Crispus Attucks in the chest. Palms immediately swung his club at Montgomery, hitting the soldier's arm. Max quickly jumped up and grabbed Palms by the trousers, causing the man's right foot to slip on the ice and pulling him down on one knee just as he tried to swing again at Captain Preston's head. Palms's club struck Preston's arm instead, causing the commander to fall. After a brief pause, but in the midst of growing chaos, the other soldiers randomly started shooting their muskets, some which also held two balls of shot. As the smoke cleared, screams rang out from the crowd as eleven men had been hit. Crispus Attucks, Samuel Gray and James Caldwell lay dead in the street. Samuel Maverick and Patrick Carr were mortally wounded, and six others lay writhing in agony. Time seemed to stand still as the smell of gunpowder filled the air. Captain Preston rose to his feet and held his sword under his men's muskets to stop them from firing again, before ordering them to march back to the main guard. The crowd fell back as the town's constable Burdick started barking orders for the people to disperse and carry the wounded and dead away. Palms and the others moved off. The dirty man slunk off into the shadows, smiling with grim satisfaction. Max remained in the middle of King Street, looking around sadly at the blood-spattered snow covering the cobblestones of Boston. Unhappy Boston, see thy sons deplore, "'Thy hallowed walks be smeared with guiltless gore,' Clarie read aloud. She and Max were poring over the news following the horrific events of March 5th, studying the etching Paul Revere had published about the event. "'The bloody massacre? Well, it were sad, I wouldn't call five dead patriots a massacre,' Max grumbled. "'This picture shows Captain Preston standing behind his men, ordering them to fire.' That's not what happened, lass, Max lamented, shaking his square head.
0: That Paul Revere sure did stretch the truth with this picture, including how he drew me. (laughs) I don't look anything like that.
1: Yes, this is what propaganda looks like, stretching the truth to inspire others to join your cause. Clary pointed to the little moon etched in the upper left-hand corner, a hint that the Boston Massacre had happened at night. Well, it was dark and hard to see that night, Max. At least Paul Revere got one thing right in this picture. A dog was indeed there. So what if history doesn't know that it was a Scottish Terrier? At least we know the truth about you, and about what really happened that night. I protected Henry Knox, and you protected Captain Preston. After the crowd moved away from the Customs House, Captain Preston had immediately called out most of the Twenty-ninth Regiment, to stop the growing mob before things spiraled completely out of control. Red-coated soldiers lined up in defensive positions in front of the State House, while Acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson stood on its balcony, promising a thorough investigation of the shootings. Calm was restored, and the next morning, Captain Preston and the eight involved soldiers were arrested to stand trial. At the insistence of Boston's citizens, all British troops were removed from the city to Castle Island. Samuel Adams staged an even larger funeral for the five victims of the Boston Massacre than he had for Christopher Sider. This time, 10,000 citizens lined the streets. We know that if we hadn't been there, it really would have been a massacre in Boston, Max agreed. So what's going to happen to Captain Preston? I have to make sure no one takes his case, Clarie answered as she scanned the Boston Gazette. Max's eyes widened with shock. Clary, lass! How can you do such a thing? The lad be innocent! Clary smiled and put a hand on Max's back. Don't worry, Max. I need to make sure no one takes his case so I can arrange for a special young lawyer to handle Captain Preston's defense. He's only a year older than our Patrick Henry. This case will be important, not just for Captain Preston and the soldiers, but for this lawyer's reputation and future leadership in America. Just as Sergeant Frost helped Captain Preston remain calm and collected, this lawyer will seek to have the same effect on hotheads like Samuel Adams going forward. Max blew out his breath relieved. Huh, that's a relief. Who's the lawyer then? He just so happens to be Sam Adams' cousin, Clarice shared with a smile. His name is John, John Adams. I say, uh, now there's a name we all know well in hindsight, what? Uh, But indeed, in Boston and throughout the colonies, those were dark, difficult days.
0: We, and this country would have many more difficult days ahead, too, which we will see as this story continues.
1: Aye, but
0: we'll see some
1: real heroic times, too. Quite so, Max, heroic indeed. But as the resident Brit in the room here, I should point out that many of my ancestors on the other side of the pond, and even a significant percentage of colonists right here in the States, saw no real need for Americans to break free from governance by the crown. At the time, the British Empire was one of the most advanced and prosperous civilizations going. So why rock the boat, as it were? Well, for one, back then, a boat were the only way to cross
0: the big pond. Ah, uh, Max. Uh... But rather than merely speculating...
1: I weren't speculating. Uh, Were I, Mosey? Ah, well, not much. Just a a skosh. Well, uh, (laughs) I beg your pardon, then?
0: Uh, As I was saying, uh, rather than um, uh, postulating...
1: Well, I know I
0: weren't postulating. Why don't we head over to Jenny's corner? As much research as she has done, I'm sure Miss Jenny can give us a reasonable perspective
2: on the matter.
0: Hello, Miss Jenny.
2: Hey, everybody. What are you curious about today?
1: Uh, Well, my dear, there seems to be a debate here as to what really led to the colonists having to declare independence at all.
2: Now, you've heard no taxation without representation.
1: uh we've sort of been beating that to death
0: all morning. Max, shush. Uh,
2: Go ahead, Miss Jenny. Well, a big issue for the colonists was not the amount... That they were being taxed on all these different taxes that the king and parliament passed, that the colonies railed against. It was the principle because we were not represented in parliament. Now, there's an argument that says, well, if we had been represented in parliament from each colony, maybe we wouldn't have had to declare independence. But think about this for a minute 3,000 miles away, okay, takes a long time to sail that distance, to sit in parliament, do some things, and then sail back with news, try governing across the months like that. It would hold up parliament. It would be very difficult. So there's some reasoning to think that it was going to happen anyway, because it just was not feasible, manageable in the long run. At that time, with no technology, they couldn't pull up their cell phones or their laptops and send emails. Maybe if they had had email back then, <laughs> we'd still be speaking with a British accent.
1: <laughs> well, uh, uh, thank you, Miss Jenny, uh, though I fail to see the issue with the notion of uh, speaking uh, the king's English, as it were.
0: Hi, mosey. but being a Scottish-American myself, I can see where keeping me old-world accent would have just been wrong. So I got myself talking a wee bit more Americanized, then. we oui, shall complain, mes amis. As a Franco-American immigrant, uh, it is rather disturbing when I listen to my speech and realize the extent to which I have completely lost all traces of my original
1: French accent. Uh, Ah, c'est tragique. And as the only one that was actually born and raised here in the good old U.S. of A., I would have to agree. Sometimes... It is hard to tell any of us apart. Rather. Hey, lad, that's for oh, sure. Oh, that is so true. So now, I suppose I could turn up the nuances of my upper Midwestern upbringing, but uh, let's face it, that's still pretty much, uh, you know, middle American kind of sound, ain't it? We oui,
0: and even Miss Jenny. is hard to distinguish from the rest of us, no? For as a true American, she no longer has even a trace of Virginia Tidewater accent.
1: I say, not even a bit of Georgia twang, for that matter. (laughs) No southern accent whatsoever.
0: (laughs) Let us face it, uh, we all talk alike, no?
1: (laughs) No. No. (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no.
1: Okay, that's enough. Uh, Miss Jenny, we hope you don't mind us having a little bit of fun with your British accent line. But all kidding aside... Something that has always been great about America is that we don't all sound alike or look alike. And yet, that don't make you any more or less American. I say, the same holds true for the maker. I mean, let's face it, he made each and every one of us a bit different from the next, yet he loves each and every one of us with an immeasurable love.
0: Oui, uh, viva la différence. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, it is a wonderful thing. I, I cannot do it, I cannot speak American, American, Amer- I, I can't do it
1: <laughs> That's okay Liz, I can't either You can't? <laughs> I didn't notice then oh, You're one to talk with all your ruling your R's
0: We, oui, they don't rule their R's in America but They don't zizzer zizzer ziz- ziz- everything either they do not Jesus ziz- ziz- <laughs> ziz- whatever you are doing
1: Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grand day. A biento, And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are
0: able.